0: Okay, we will make a start tonight. So tonight we're going to think about Richard Sibbs, and uh, my time to, our time together falls into two sections. One is uh, working through his life with, by uh, slideshow, and then the second is the sheet that was there uh, that I hope you picked up a copy of where uh, we have some of his thinking about the Holy Spirit. And it comes from a, uh, a text that was published after his death 1639 a sermon called a description of christ so you should have two pages to that and uh, at the end of our kind of slideshow we'll i'm going to put the lights on so we can all easily see and uh, we will work through that text okay let me begin with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll get going F- our Father, we thank you for this night, for the privilege and ability to come here and think about the past, think about servants that you have used. And our time tonight, we pray that you would be with us to bless our reflections, our words, our thoughts, as we think about Richard Sibbs and his ministry in England. And may it be both intellectually helpful, but also profitable for our souls. And we pray in all of this, you might be glorified for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, Richard Sibbs, uh, 1577 to 1635. Those dates will come up uh, a little later. Um, this is the normal portrait of Sibs. I think there was only one portrait made in his life. Um, it's a bit unusual in the sense of the, the hat. I think that's a nightcap of some sort. I've... <laughs> uh, uh, I've never come across anybody else in this period wearing anything like it. Uh, this might, uh, in your minds, be also unusual, but that is not atypical of men's dress in this period. And in fact, if you know anything about Lutheran ministers in Denmark and uh, maybe Norway and Iceland, they still wear, some of them still wear a traditional garb that is something like this this lace uh, kind of frill around the neck Um, I saw one remark that this was kind of uh, avant-garde dress for his day but it actually was not uh, unusual uh, for men uh, to wear this Uh, just before we get going uh, there are two good books on sibs uh, both of them by Mark Dever you may know the name Mark Dever is the pastor of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington DC about a mile or so from the capital and uh, he did his uh, PhD at the University of Cambridge, where he did his doctoral work on uh, Richard Sibbes. And in fact, this book um, is his doctoral work. So this is a fairly dense study of Sips, Sips's life, Sips's theology. Um, this is a kind of a popular version of it. Uh, this is a series of books called A Long Line of Godly Men. Uh, It's in a series that is edited by Steve Lawson. You may know that name. Uh, Steve Lawson teaches with uh, John MacArthur, but he also teaches out on the East Coast with Ligonier. And he has this series. uh, They've just repackaged it in a very plain cover, white cover of a little picture of each individual in the series. I think this one's a much more attractive uh, kind of portrait. Uh, And you'll notice the the frilly hat. this particular painting was owned by a, um, an antiquarian bookseller in Philadelphia. Uh, the, for some, somehow, he found out it was being sold, whatever library in England, and he acquired it. Um, I have no idea if it's... Uh, I, he recently passed away. I have no idea if, uh, if it was sold before he passed away or what. But this is, as far as I know, the only portrait that we have of uh, Sibs. Uh, Sibs over the years has been his uh, ministry has been deeply appreciated. Here's C.H. Spurgeon. Sibs never wastes the students' time. He scatters pearls and diamonds with both hands, and he's talking here about just the gems that you find as you read along in Sibs' writings. Um, there was a period of time in Martin Lloyd Jones' life, if you know that name, uh, one of the greatest preachers I think of the 20th century, Welsh. And he was in the 1920s, he wrestled with a significant period, almost of depression. And he said, I went to Sibs, and Sibs was enormously helpful. He was a tonic, tonic and a bomb uh, to my soul. So Sibs is born in a little place called Tostock, which is right there in the heart of Suffolk. And uh, not that far from Cambridge, this is probably about I would think maybe an hour at most. Uh, There's a major little town here called Bury St. Edmunds and then Ipswich down here, if you know that area. Um, This is all very familiar. I was born in Birmingham, grew up in Coventry. Uh, Of course, knew nothing of this whole world when I was growing up. Uh, This is the parish church at uh, Tostock. And uh, for a while I thought he was, that's when he was baptized as an infant, but it looks like he was baptized in another church uh, up up here at a place called Thurston. So born in 1577, um, Queen Elizabeth II is on the throne. This is the beginning of the Puritan movement. Uh, The Puritans are beginning to agitate about changes that they wanted. And there is growing conflict within the Church of England over the Puritan agitation for various changes in worship. And uh, in the following decade... Uh, there will be challenges, as we've we've seen all this, there will be challenges regarding church government, and a number of the Puritans will move towards Presbyterianism. Um, Sib seems to have been content all his life with an episcopal structure. He's really never involved in controversy. Um, his father was a wheelwright. And uh, here's a traditional wheelwright. Uh, This is obviously from today, uh, creating a wheel. And um, in that period, uh, 90% of men would follow their father's profession. So if I were to go around this room and simply ask the men, what did your father do? And then 90% of the time, I could guess what you do. Uh, You basically followed your father's profession. Uh, This is a very different world than our world in a number of ways. One of the ways in which this is a very different world, we tend to look back, say, to the 1950s as kind of the model, traditional family, where you've got a father, a mother, two children, three children. This is a very different world. The typical household would have usually a father, mother, some children, uh, maybe an unmarried sister, uh, a grandmother, grandfather, maybe a couple of Living cousins and some servants Uh, the father was there 24 7 because he normally did whatever he did in the house Uh, if he was a wheelwright he would have a shop in the back of his house uh, where he would make wheels and his children would learn the sons especially would learn the trade as they as they grew older and that's why it was typical for a son to follow in his, his father's footsteps So when John Bunyan, for example, who never went to university, uh, his father was a tinker, which doesn't mean then what it means now. And then it means a man who mends pots and pans. Uh, Some of you may uh, have seen this in the summer We have where we are. uh, We'll have a a truck that'll go around, it's not an ice cream truck, uh, ringing a bell, and he'll sharpen knives and uh, et cetera. That's what Bunyan was. He would go from house to house mending pots and pans and uh, that's what his father did and when he was called to preach and he eventually ends up being put on trial it's very interesting in his trial one of the questions the judges asked him what did your father do well he was a thinker he mended pots and pans well it's obvious what you should do you shouldn't be out preaching you should do what your father did um so it was expected that he would follow in his father's footsteps his father paul Sips was a christian believer um, apparently got frustrated with his son that his son didn't want to be, become a wheelwright I uh, wanted simply to read books um, he tried to encourage him give him some tools to help him you know uh, get involved in what he was doing but all to no avail and so it became very obvious that the son had a different future and uh, in uh, 1595 so when he's 18 he matriculates that is he he starts his education, his post uh, post-secondary education, here at St. John's College. My daughter and I were here for a whole day last uh, summer. And uh, I didn't realize this. I'd seen this before, but I didn't realize the only way you can get into this, you have to be formally admitted to the college by somebody who's in the college. So there was a doctoral student who I knew. He got us into the college, and we stood on that bridge. There's two of, there's two of these in England. There's one in Oxford. This one is much prettier. And this is the back of the college. So you'd actually come through here. Uh, There's two or three, I can't show you, but there's two or three kind of courts you go into. There's the, the entrance, it's a red brick entrance. Then you go into another area, then another area, which is this. Then you cross this bridge, and that's what you see at the back. And the river, this river flows kind of back here as well. This is gravel and the lawn. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, so he was here. He would be here for uh, the best part of eight or nine years. He gets his uh, BA in 1599 and then he gets an MA in 1602. This is the leading preacher. I mentioned him a little before William Perkins and you'll notice the he's got the color too. It's as I say, it's pretty standard for men of this period. Um, uh, William Perkins uh, was the leading preacher in Cambridge. Cambridge was a, a bastion of Puritans, and a number of the colleges were basically uh, designed to train Puritan ministers. Uh, St. John's was not such, but uh, he is the leading preacher here. He was a, he was the minister at a place called St. Andrew the Great. That is still, if you ever go to, sorry, I, I said Oxford, I meant Cambridge. If you ever go to Cambridge, and you want to go to an evangelical church, St. Andrew the Great is still strongly evangelical. It's known as Stagg, and it's got a long, long history going all the way back into this period. Perkins was the preacher there. and um, uh, Sibb's conversion, though, comes not through Perkins. Perkins had died in 1602. He was succeeded by a man named Paul Baines. Uh, we don't have portraits of Baines. We do have this book of Baines, uh, published quite a number of years after his death and it was under paul baines's uh, ministry that perkins uh sorry that um uh, sibs was converted uh very interesting little saying of baines that i thought might be interesting beware of a strong head and a cold heart um your theology should be to touch your heart not simply your mind um he was ordained in 1607 and uh went on to earn a BD. So you would earn a BA and MA and a BD is a Bachelor of Divinity. Um, it's built on top of a BA and an MA. Uh, today we call this a Master of Divinity. Uh, a lot of students who take the Master of Divinity think they're doing a second, like a ma- actual master's degree, but they're actually doing another BA. Because we accept, let's say at Southern, we accept at uh, uh, Heritage where I do some teaching, uh, we accept students into the MDIP program, the Master of Divinity program, who have done a BA in, you know, any of the arts, they've done a B-commerce, B-com, they could have done a Bachelor of Engineering, they have have done any theology or religion, and they still come in and do a Master's degree, which technically is always a second degree uh, over above your of your Bachelor's. So it was better when he was called a BD, but anyway, that was changed in the 1960s. So he was appointed to Holy Trinity, Uh, Here it is. I've been in Holy Trinity once, I believe. It's always locked when I've been in Cambridge. Um, The one time I did go in, uh, they had a huge uh, kind of swimming pool thing for a baptism. This is an Anglican church baptizing infants. And it's very interesting that they're seeing significant numbers of converts in their adult, uh, as adults and teens. Um, As far as I know, it's still evangelical. Um, in this period it becomes again a bastion of puritanism this is a painting from the 19th century Uh, it's very interesting how one can if you know the church you can immediately recognize it this is not the best of pictures and i apologize Um, when he began preaching there significant numbers came to hear him sips they had to rebuild an entire gallery to accommodate the hearers a number of the men who were converted under his ministry, Hugh Peters. Um, Hugh Peters is a firebrand. Um, he's he's a bit of a fanatic, actually. Um, he's a key uh, during the Civil War. He was a key figure in lobbying for the execution of the king. And uh, he is he's a he's a very far to the left or the right, whatever way you want to put him. Um, but he was converted under his ministry. A man named John Cotton. John Cotton is a very important Puritan who comes to Boston in America and will be very influential in shaping the early life of Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, This man, Thomas Goodwin, who becomes the, uh, the vice president of Cambridge University for a period of time, and then eventually also the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. Um, he, he had a very distinct, uh, he was very distinctly shaped by Sibs. And then this man, John Preston, uh, his whole style of preaching was changed. Uh, Sibs believed, this is actually a quote from Sibs in terms of preaching, to preach is to woo. Not simply to convey information, nor simply to urge people to do things, but is to create in your preaching a love for Christ, uh, to to show the Christian life as eminently desirable and beautiful. And I think that's part of the the impact of Sibs. The main scope of all preaching is to allure us to the entertainment. And entertainment there doesn't mean what it means today. It means the embrace of. Uh, When we hear that word, we think of uh, a pastime or whatever. But it's the idea of to embrace Christ's. Mild, safe, wise, victorious government. Um, In the mid-16-teens, he does run into trouble with the government because it's quite clear he's a Puritan, and he is removed from being the preacher at Holy Trinity. And he finds employment in London. This is uh, an inn called Gray's Inn. It's a law court. And uh, there are four inns of law courts in London. And even today, you cannot be called to the bar. That has become a, a, a formerly a barrister or a solicitor in England or Wales if you have not done some study at one of these four, four inns. And uh, this particular building, this would be, be 17th or 18th century. This is probably 18th century, but the actual site goes back to 1370. They've been training lawyers there since 1370. It's interesting that he's appointed as a preacher to a law school which is interesting. My son's just done law at um, Western and um, when we were when he was choosing the various law schools uh, we were encouraged by we have a lawyer friend to think of Western because Western for a number of years had the dean of the law school there was a Christian and uh, law can be a very challenging profession for a christian and um but it's fascinating in this period uh the law schools would have a preacher which meant that there would be a regular chapel every week that they would have to go to and hear sibs preach Uh, about 10 years later um he moves back to cambridge but he keeps the preaching at uh, gray's inn so he'll i'm not sure how often but he would go up to london on a regular basis from Cambridge. Now today you could do that in about an hour. It probably would take him about a day then. So he he keeps the appointment in London, but he accepts another one in Cambridge at a place that was then called St. Catherine's Hall. It's now St. Catherine's College. And then finally, in 1633, the king, Charles I, reappoints him to Holy Trinity, where the church where he had begun his ministry... And was removed um, by actually Charles's father would have removed him Charles reappoints him and uh, Charles must have felt he was Charles is in a major conflict in the 1630s of the Puritans but he must have felt that Sims was safe enough to reappoint and he keeps all three positions he stays as the master of this hall Um, he continues preaching regularly at Holy Trinity and then on occasion he must have gone up to London uh, to uh, graze in. Um, this again, this is a very old picture of Sibs, and you got again that wee hat and the ruffle. So as I said, there's one picture of Sibs, and every other picture has been drawn from it. Um, there's a great saying of him by a man named Isaac Walton. Isaac Walton was not a Puritan. He was a biographer, and he also was a keen fisherman. And he wrote a book called The Complete Angler. I'm not sure if... I don't know if any of you are into fishing, but if you're into fishing, you'd know Isaac Walden's The Complete Angler in which he describes all the ins and outs. I've never been fishing in my life, so I've got no idea uh, beyond this book what I'm talking about. But he describes all the ins and outs of fishing, different types of fishing. I gather there's one. You just put the line in in the water. Another one you cast. Anyway, all that. And so Isaac Walden is not known for being overly religious but he said of uh, Sibs heaven was in him before he was in heaven which is a, a lovely saying um, he died in july of 1635. a couple of things about simps and then we'll look at the text that we have uh, before us Sibs never married uh, that would be part of the requirement to be a professor at cambridge and oxford if you were a professor at Cambridge and Oxford, you could not marry. And I think that only changes in the 20th century. You also had to be a minister, an ordained minister in the Church of England. So it's not surprising he didn't marry, but he established an astonishing network of friendships. And um, friendship is something I'm very interested in for whatever reasons. And he could say this, there is a sweet side of God in the face of a friend though the comfort given by God's messengers be ordinarily most effectual as God's preachers, as the blessing of parents who are in God's room is more effectual than the blessing of others who want the children, yet God had promised a blessing to the communion of saints. And uh, he was very conscious of the importance of having friends in the Christian life. Uh, Books by Sips. This is probably his most well-known book, The Bruised Read. It's the a passage where Jesus says that the Messiah will not bruise a reed or break a, 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 a piece of flax. Um, this is a collection. There's a whole collection of his works published by the Banner of Truth. Uh, this is St. John's College from the back. Uh, there are six volumes in that series. Most of these books were published after Simpsons' death. Uh, his works were collected and published. And then this is, I, I don't know this book. When I came across it, I thought it might be interesting. Um, it's a year of daily devotional thoughts from Sibs. Uh, obviously, this man, uh, Donald McKinnon, uh, I don't know who he is, but has gone through his writings and selected them and assigned you know, a little reading for each day. Well, this is what we want to look at, uh, Sibs on the Holy Spirit. Um, in this particular work, A Fountain Sealed, The Work of the Spirit and Sealing, which I'll mention in a second, uh, he could say this, What greater indignity can we offer to the Holy Spirit than to prefer base dust, that is, human beings, before His motions leading us to holiness and happiness? What greater unkindness, yea, treachery, to leave directions of a friend to follow the counsel of an enemy, such as when we know God's will, it will consent with flesh and blood in leaving a true guide, And following a pirate, and he's talking here obviously about not listening to the Spirit as he has given us his word uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, This is a very interesting book. I'm not going to get into it in detail. Uh, We'll turn to the text in a second. Uh, sibs believed on the basis of Ephesians chapter one verse fourteen that there, the sealing of the Spirit, that there is a second work that takes place in believers' lives. There's conversion, and then when you receive the Spirit. But then later, you will be sealed with the Spirit, which gives you assurance of salvation. And it sounds to us in the 20th century, early 21st century, like Pentecostalism. Uh, it's not, but it has a, a similar sort of idea that there are two stages in the Christian life. And Sibs was, was a key figure in passing that teaching down. Well, let me turn then, if you've got that text, uh, let me turn to that I put the lights, the lights on. Um. Sorry. Uh-huh. Okay, so this comes from uh, a sermon on uh, called The Description of Christ. Uh, Sibs dies in sixteen thirty five. It was not published till after his death and let me just go through parts of it and i'll read and make a comment and it's based on the scripture passage behold my servant whom i have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is pleased well pleased i will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the gentiles he shall not strive nor cry neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets If God love and delight in those that are in Christ with the same love and delight that he has in him, that is Christ, how shall I know that I am in Christ and that God thus delights in me? And this is a big question the Puritans wrestled with. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I've been saved? How do I know I've been justified by faith? Briefly, a man may know that he's in Christ if he find the spirit of Christ in him. For the same Spirit, when Christ took our nature, that sanctified that blessed Mass, whereof he was made, when there was a union between him and the second person, the same Spirit sanctifies our souls and bodies. There is one Spirit in the head, Christ, and in the members, us. Therefore, if we find the Spirit of Christ in us, we are in Christ and he in us. And so one basic thing he's emphasizing here, that a Christian is a person who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this is pretty standard Puritan teaching. It's pretty standard Christian teaching down through the years, that really there are only two types of human beings, those in whom the Spirit dwells and those in whom he does not. I will put my Spirit upon him. And he's now going to comment on that little phrase from Matthew 12. It may be objected, Christ was God himself. He had the Spirit and gives the Spirit. Therefore, how could the Spirit be put upon him? I answer. Christ is both God and man. Christ, as God, gives the Spirit to His human nature. So He communicates His Spirit. The Spirit is His Spirit, as well as the Father's. The Spirit proceeds from them both. Christ, as man, receives the Spirit. God the Father and the Son put the Spirit upon the manhood of Christ, so Christ both gives and receives the Spirit in diverse respects. As God, He gives and sends the Spirit, The spiration and breathing, the spiration is procession, the proceeding. The spiration and breathing of the Spirit is from him as well as from the Father. But as man, he received the Spirit. And this is really, really kind of profound reflection that our Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. As God, he sends the Spirit as a gift. And because of uh, he's the, the humanity Christ, is receives the Spirit that the Son sends and it's taking seriously, number one, that Christ is both God and man, uh, and then secondly, that the Spirit uh, is sent from God to humanity, and therefore the humanity of Christ must receive the Spirit even as we do. Third paragraph there, and this is the reason of it. Next, under the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Christ the Mediator was to be the spring and original of all comfort and good. Now, when he says christ the mediator he's thinking of christ in his humanity therefore christ's nature must not only be sanctified and ordained by the spirit but he must receive the spirit to enrich it for whatsoever is wrought in the creature is by the spirit whatsoever christ did as man he did by the spirit christ's human nature must therefore be sanctified and have the spirit put upon it god the father the first person in the trinity and god the son the second they work not immediately, but by the Holy Ghost, the third person. Therefore, whatsoever is wrought upon the creature, it comes from the Holy Ghost immediately. So Christ received the Holy Ghost, as sent from the Father and the Son. And really, he's just explaining further what he's already emph- emphasized, that uh, Christ, Lord Jesus Christ as God sends the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ as hu- hum- a human receives the Spirit. And what he's going to emphasize as he goes on is that Christ's humanity in relation to the Spirit is a model for us. He also emphasizes there that uh, whenever the Holy, the, the Father and the Son act, they act by the Holy Ghost. So our first experience of God is always of the God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes into our lives and opens our eyes to see Christ, to know Christ, and through Christ to know the Father. But our first experience of God is by the Spirit. One of the big things that uh, I think, well, a lot of evangelicals in the 20th and 21st centuries forgotten is that in their history, going back to the Reformation, there has always been this very deep interest in the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the 20th century, uh, we've kind of allowed certain groups, Pentecostals, Charismatics, to maintain that interest. And we've kind of all, okay, they're very interested in the Spirit. That, that historically has not been where our focus has been, uh, has been. But historically, if you go back, the Puritans were deeply interested in the Holy Spirit. So let me pick up where I left off. So Christ received the Holy Ghost to sent from the Father and the Son. Now, as the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, so he works on the Father and the Son. He sanctifies and purifies and does all from the Father and the Son and knits us to the Father and the Son. To the Son first, then to the Father. In other words, the reason why we know God is because of the Spirit. The Spirit comes, uh, opens our eyes to see who we are, as we'll see in a minute, and then draws us to Christ, gives us faith, which faith in Christ and through Christ we are then linked to the Father. And then he quotes here, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, uh, Paul's benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. And he's picking up on that little phrase communion. Uh, we, have, we have fellowship or communion with the Father and the Son because of the Spirit. All the communion we have with God is by the Holy Ghost. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I think uh, sometimes um, we fail—we fail to do justice to the work of the Spirit because we forget how absolutely dependent we are upon the Spirit of God. And uh, I think some of us would be very frightened um, if something like w- what uh, C. S. Spurgeon would sometimes do in the middle of his preaching. Sometimes in the middle of his preaching, he would stop and pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon the congregation. And I think in our, given our context, we've always, we always think, oh, the guy's gone, he's gone Pentecostal, or he's gone charismatic. But he's actually part of this long tradition that recognizes without the Spirit, we can do nothing. All the communion that Christ as man had with God was by the Holy Ghost. And all the communion that God has of us, and we with God, is by the Holy Ghost, for the Spirit is the bond of union between Christ and us, and between God and us. God communicates Himself to us by a Spirit, we communicate with God by His Spirit. God does all in us by His Spirit, and we do all back again to God by the Spirit. And you can see very clearly there, it's it's very plain, I mean, he's, he's doing two things here. One is he's, he's actually probing into some of the depths of, of the, the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. Sorry, the Son uh, in Christ, the, the deity and humanity. But he's then relating it to, to us in terms of our relationship to God. And the way in which we relate to God is by the Spirit. Now, he continues to pick up. So how do we know we have the Spirit in us? Well, he goes on. If we have the Spirit of Christ, it... The spirit will convince us of our own ill, of our rebellion and uh, rebellions and cursed estate. And it will convince us likewise of the good we have in him. In other words, one of the marks of a Christian is the realization that I'm a sinner. And it's a very early mark. Uh, the realization that I am under the, the judgment of God outside of Christ, and that I deserve judgment. And uh, the only place of safety is in Christ. So if I have those convictions, then it's clear from Sibs' teaching here that I am, that the Spirit of God is at work in my life. And then he has a spirit of union to knit us to Christ, make us one with him, and thereupon to quicken us, to lead us, guide us, and to dwell in us continually, to stir up prayers and supplications us, to make us cry familiarly to God as to a Father, to comfort and support us in all our wants and miseries, as he did Christ, to help our infirmities, as the apostle at large in Romans 8.26 sets down the excellent office of the Holy Ghost, what he does in those that are Christ's. And so he, he really, in a very, very short compass, he sums up a host of things that the Spirit does. Uh, the Spirit um, brings us into union with Christ. There's a very common phrase in Paul that a person is in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Um, what else does he do? Well, he quickens, he, make, he makes us alive in Christ. He leads us, he guides us. He dwells in us, there's a little emphasis, continually. Those in whom the Spirit takes up residence, he will never leave. Um, he helps us pray. And he quotes that amazing passage in Romans eight twenty six twenty seven. 27. Which I'm not exactly sure he's con- got completely right. In Romans 8:26:27, uh, Paul uh, says, the Spirit uh, prays in us uh, with groans too deep for words, but the Father hears those groans. And what uh, he appears to understand is that the Romans 8:26 is that the Spirit helps us to pray, which he does. But I think in Romans 8:26, the Spirit actually prays which is quite remarkable. But either so, he is, he's certainly right if you go to passages uh, like Ephesians 6, uh, where Paul talks about the spirit of supplication, or Jude, which also talks similarly. So the spirit does help us to pray. Uh, at the least, whoever, whosoever has the spirit of Christ, he shall find that spirit in him, striving against that which is contrary, and little by little gaining ground, Where there is no conflict, there's no Spirit of Christ at all. And there should be a full stop after that. Do you find in your life conflict? Uh, Not conflict with people, but conflict in here. Uh, Conflict with sin. And uh, again, the Puritan teaching here is that the Spirit, when He comes into a person's life, brings war against your sin. Uh, Sibs doesn't develop it here, but... Uh, A Puritan like John Owen could could say, you need to be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And the Christian Christian life is a life of warfare but against sin. My biggest problem is not the government, uh, not my neighbor, uh, not my family. My biggest problem is me. And the old nature of me that you need to continually fight. And notice it is a winning fight. By little by little getting ground or Gaining ground, the Spirit of God never goes but where there is a magnifying of the love and mercy of God in Christ, and therefore the ministry of the gospel, which only discovers the amity and love of God to mankind, being now reconciled in Christ, is it is accompanied by the Spirit to assure us of our part and portion in those benefits. For the Spirit is the fruit of God's love as well as Christ. Christ is the first gift, and the Spirit is the second. For by the Spirit we see our cursed estate. Now he's repeating some of what he's looked at already earlier. By the way, the the, the full text runs to about 25 pages. So I have abridged it. Uh, For by the Spirit we see our cursed estate without the love and mercy. Sorry, for by the Spirit we see our cursed estate without the love and mercy of God in Christ. And likewise we are convinced of the love of God in Christ. And thereupon we love God in return and trust to His mercy. And out of love to Him perform all cheerful obedience. Again, uh, the Spirit opens our eyes to who we are outside of Christ, shows us what there is in Christ, the beauty of Christ, the salvation in Christ, and draws us to Him. Whatsoever we do else, if it be not stirred by the Spirit, apprehending the love of God in Christ, it is but morality. And so there's a difference between Christian living and simply being a good person that follows certain moral laws. A man shall never go to heaven except by such a disposition and frame and temper of soul as is wrought by the Holy Ghost, persuading the soul first of the love and favor of God in Christ. What are all our performances if they be not out of love of God? And how shall we love God except we be persuaded He loves us first? Therefore, the gospel breeds love in us to God and has the spirit together that working a blessed frame of sanctification whereby we are disposed to every good duty. And so why is it we pursue holiness? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit's in us, enabling us to do so, and enabling us to do so because we love God. It's not simply, Christians don't simply do good because they've got moral convictions of doing good. That's there, of course, but at the heart of it is a love for God, because God loves holiness. And the Spirit enables us uh, to live in such a way. What is the reason that former times were called dark times? And so they were. The times of popery, at dark age. He's thinking here of the Middle Ages. Well, Christ was veiled. The gospel was veiled. There was no preaching of salvation by Christ alone. Christ was obscured. Thereupon there they they were dark ages. Those ages wherein the Spirit of God is most is where Christ is most preached. And uh, in other words, what are the ages where what are the times in the history of the church where the Spirit of God is being most at work where Christ is preached? And there are long sections of the Middle Ages or certain areas of the Middle Ages where the focus is not on Christ at all. In fact, in many contexts, there's no preaching at all. Uh, the Mass was seen as the central thing. The preaching of mere morality, if Ben beat men, be not careful to open Christ, to know how salvation is wrought by Christ, and how all good comes from by Christ it will never make a man perfectly good and fit him for heaven. It may make a man reform many abuses, like a philosopher, which has its reward and its respect amongst men, but nothing to give comfort at the hour of death and the day of judgment. Only that whereby the Spirit is conveyed, the knowledge of preaching of Christ in his state and offices. And so again, there's a there's a real difference between Christian living and merely what we might describe as a morally good person. Uh, the latter is, from Sibs' point of view, it's all outward in one sense. Uh, it doesn't have its spring in the spirit. It doesn't have its spring or reason, the love of God. Therefore, we should not set up sails to our own meditations, that unless we be carried with a window of applause to be becalmed and not go a forward, but we should be carried with the spirit of God and with a holy desire to serve God, and our brethren, and to do all the good we can. This does not mean we don't do good, but it's goodness that comes out of the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this evening, for the work of men like Sibs, for the reminder that without your Spirit, we can do nothing in our Christian lives. We pray that he might dwell in us richly, and that we might walk with him according to your word, not grieving him, not quenching him, but having, allowing him to have his way in our lives. And this for your glory and the glory of your son. Amen.